Hello, I'm Paulette Lee, and you're listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. If you're over 60, you're still worthy of being heard. Last week, in honor of Memorial Day, my podcast was on grief and loss. So this week, it is on joy. Recently, I decided I needed an attitude adjustment, so I started a joy journal. I deliberately chose not to do a gratitude journal because giving thanks to someone or something didn't feel right to me, and being thankful for seemed, I don't know, too passive and too generic. But deliberately waking up each morning determined to find one or more joys in the day to note before I go to sleep at night, that felt right. I have to confess, though, some days I'm hard-pressed to find those joy nuggets, as I call them. One friend laughingly agreed with me, saying her go-to is chocolate. But joy is one of those feelings that's difficult to explain. It's probably experienced differently by everyone, and arguably it's distinct from other pleasurable feelings such as happiness and contentment. Let's start with happiness. Again, what makes each of us happy is different. For some of us, it's spending time with children and grandchildren. For others, it's learning a new skill or subject matter. It's creative expression or it's spending time in and with nature. It's giving to others and and so on. Of course, we often hear money can't buy happiness. And then, I don't know about you, but I think, yeah, but poverty sure can't either. In his May 14, 2022 New York Times essay, The Rich Are Not Who We Think They Are, and Happiness Is Not What We Think It Is Either, and a shout out to Lori for providing this to me, I'm going to quote from and paraphrase what author Seth Stevens Davidowitz wrote. Quote, A study of thousands of millionaires led by researchers at Harvard Business School did find a gain in happiness that kicks in when people's net worth rises above $8 million. But the effect was small. A net worth of $8 million offers a boost of happiness that is roughly half as large as the happiness boost from being married. Okay, the author thinks the best happiness study is the Mappiness Project, founded uh, by two British economists who pinged tens of thousands of people on their smartphones and then asked them simple questions. Who were they with? What were they doing? How happy were they? From this, they built a sample of more than 3 million data points. So, what do three million happiness data points tell us? Well, it turns out, according to this study, that the activities that make people happiest include sex, exercise, and gardening. I will share here, I do not like either gardening nor exercise. (laughs) Okay. So people get a big happiness boost from being with a romantic partner or friends, but not with just any other people like colleagues, children, or acquaintances. Weather plays only a small role in happiness, except that people get a hearty mood boost on extraordinary days, such as those above 75 degrees and sunny, which it happens to be right now as I'm recording this. 
In fact, the weather is so nice, you may be hearing the sound of neighbors mowing their lawns in the background. <laughs> I do not have a soundproof studio. So to go back to this mappiness study, people are consistently happier when they are out in nature, particularly near a body of water and particularly when the scenery is beautiful. The findings on the data of happiness are, to be honest, obvious. When I, and this is still the author speaking, told my friends about these studies, the most common response was, do we need scientists to tell us this? But I would argue that there is profundity in the obviousness of the data on happiness. Sometimes big data reveal a shocking secret. At other times, big data tells us that there is no secret. And that's the case with happiness. Continuing with the author's words, this is crucial to keep in mind for the many of us who are not doing the obvious things that make people happy. We are falling for traps that the data say are unlikely to make us happy. And still from this article, UK researchers Alex Bryson and George McCarran found that work is the second most miserable activity. Of 40 activities, only being sick in bed makes people less happy than working. The economist Stephen Levitt found that when people are uncertain whether to quit a job, they can be nudged to quit. And when they quit, they report increased happiness months later. Whiling away hours on social media, also not a path to happiness. The Mappiness Project found that of 27 leisure activities, social media rank dead last in how much happiness they bring. A random controlled trial on the effects of social media found that when people were paid to stop using Facebook, they spent more time socializing and reported higher subjective well-being." Unquote. And Stevens Davidowitz continues, the data-driven life to uh, answer to life is as follows. Be with your love on an 80-degree and sunny day overlooking a beautiful body of water <laughs> having sex, unquote. Well, that might be happiness, but according to the Tibetan spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, it definitely isn't joy. Now, the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates is said to have conflated the two, joy and happiness, by maintaining that happiness flows not from physical or external conditions, such as bodily pleasures or wealth and power, but from living a life that's right for your soul, your deepest good. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here um, on what Socrates meant by soul, but I can tell you that it was a fairly new concept for his time and more like what most of, a tra most of us traditionally think of as being the soul. And uh, since Socrates, by the way, didn't write anything, we only know what he believed and practiced uh, from what was written by his student Plato and then by Plato's student Aristotle. We do know, though, that while Socrates professed his own ignorance of many of the subjects he investigated through his questioning methods, now known as the Socratic method, he did believe that, quote, the unexamined life is not worth living, unquote that ethical virtue is the only thing that matters and endures and surpasses misfortune. 
So going back to the Dalai Lama, the Book of Joy with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa is by Douglas Abrams, and it's based on the April 2015 visit by Archbishop Tutu's um, uh, travels to the Dalai Lama's home in exile in Dharamsala, India, to celebrate the Tibetan spiritual leader's 80th birthday. So here are these two sages, Eight Pillars of Joy, and I've edited them from the book somewhat for brevity. One, perspective. See yourself and your problem from a wider perspective. Try to step back from yourself and your problem. See yourself and your struggle as if you were watching a movie about yourself. Recognize that your problem will pass. The second of the eight pillars of joy, humility. Now see yourself as one of the seven billion people and your problem is part of the pain and suffering that so many human beings experience. See how deeply connected we are with one another. Your connection to others makes you much stronger and more capable of solving your problem. Three, humor. Smile and, and see if you can chuckle at your problem, at your shortcomings, at your frailties. Try to find the humor in the situation and in your struggle. This ability to laugh allows us to accept life as it is, broken and imperfect, even as we aspire for a better life and a better world. The fourth of the eight pillars of joy, according to the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, acceptance. Accept that you are struggling and accept that you have human limitations. Acknowledge that you cannot uh, know all the factors that have led to this event. Remind yourself, in order to make the most positive contribution to this situation, I must accept the reality of its existence. Five, forgiveness. Place your hand on your heart and forgive yourself for any part you have played in creating this problem or this situation. See the shared humanity of any others who are involved and forgive them for their part and for their human limitations. Six, gratitude. Think of three or more people or things that you are grateful for in this problem or your life right now. Seven, compassion. Put your hand on your heart or place the palms of your hands together at your heart. Remember, it takes time to grow and learn. You are not meant to be perfect. Feel the light of loving kindness shining from your heart throughout your body. Now send that compassion out. And the eighth of their eight pillars of joy is generosity. Feel the deep generosity that is in your heart. Imagine yourself radiating this generosity of the spirit to all around you. When we give joy to others, we experience true joy ourselves. Dr. Paul Ekman, a clinical psychologist and retired professor now in private corporate practice, is a specialist in cross-cultural nonverbal behavior, especially microfacial expressions. 
He's developed a personal relationship with the Dalai Lama, and they spent more than 50 hours together in conversation. And six of those hours in January of 2012 were on the topic of compassion. Those became the subject of Ekman's book, Emotional Awareness. In an excerpt from that book, Ekman sought the Dalai Lama's view of gratitude versus joy. Ekman. I would like to mention two other emotions that I think are relevant to the development of compassion. Often, though not always, when someone is thanked profusely, especially if it is done while others are present, the person being thanked can become overwhelmed and speechless and tears may flow. The person who is expressing thanks feels gratitude, but should we use the same word for the person being thanked? Certainly, that person is grateful for being thanked, for being acknowledged. Dalai Lama, through his interpreter. If I'm quite thankful to you and I say, I am so thankful you have been kind to me, the gratitude is within me. Then you, the person being thanked, in turn might respond with a sense of joy, feeling grateful for being thanked. It is a kind of exchange. Two things are happening. From one side, a feeling of gratefulness or gratitude, and from the other side, a sense of responding to and recognizing the gratefulness that is felt. In these two cases, the object is different. Ekman, let me suggest that the exchange of gratitude may help to move people toward becoming more compassionate. Helping is a compassionate act, and being thanked and feeling appreciated should strengthen the inclination to respond in that fashion. In addition to gratitude, there is another emotion that seems related to cultivating compassion. The anthropologist John Haidt has written what he calls elevation, the feeling you have when you see someone else engaged in a compassionate act. It makes you feel good. It is different from other feelings of goodness. Do you have a name for this? Jinpa, a fellow Buddhist scholar and interpreter for the Dalai Lama, we call it rejoicing. Dalai Lama, as interpreted, when I watch nature television or see a mother express affectionate dedication to her offspring, I feel a sense of rejoicing because they are confirmations of the value of compassion. So what is the essence here? Ekman, the essence is that we rejoice and are inspired by the compassionate actions of others. Designer Ingrid Fettel, or Fettel Lee, no relation to me, who has created a business out of the aesthetics of joy and is ubiquitous online, also differentiates the longer-term emotion of happiness from the intense and momentary experience of joy. She has a TED Talk about aesthetics and joy in which she talks about having spent 10 years asking everyone she met, what makes you joyful? She found that most people, regardless of age or ethnicity, described physical things such as cherry blossoms, uh, bubbles, swimming pools, tree houses, hot air balloons, and ice cream cones, especially with sprinkles, she said. And she concluded that this was important because it showed our shared humanity that we find in our common experience in the physical world. But I still needed to know, what is it about these things that makes them so joyful? 
I had pictures of them up on my studio wall, and every day I would come in and try to make sense of it. And then one day, something just clicked. I saw all these patterns, round things, pops of bright color, symmetrical shapes, a sense of abundance and multiplicity, a feeling of lightness or elevation. When I saw it this way, I realized that though the feeling of joy is mysterious and elusive, we can access it through tangible physical attributes, or what designers call aesthetics, a word that comes from the same root as the Greek word aisthanomai, which means I feel, I sense, I perceive. I know that for me, joy is different from happiness. I know I felt both, but for me, joy is neither about experiencing the compassion of others nor aesthetics. I just know it when I feel it. I like this description of the differences between joy and happiness uh, that's offered by the international Christian charity, which is called Compassion. The difference between joy and happiness lives in the mind and heart. Joy is a little word. Happiness is a bigger word. Joy is in the heart. Happiness is on the face. Joy is of the soul. Happiness is of the moment. Joy transcends. Happiness reacts. Joy embraces peace and contentment, waiting to be discovered. Joy runs deep and overflows while happiness hugs hello. Joy is a practice and a behavior. It's deliberate and intentional. Happiness comes and goes blithely along its way. Joy is profound and scriptural. Don't worry, rejoice. Happiness is a balm. Don't worry, be happy. Joy is an inner feeling. Happiness is an outward expression. Joy endures hardship and trials and connects with meaning and purpose. A person pursues happiness, but chooses joy. Choose joy, practice joy, know joy, live joy, feel happiness. Again, that's a description from uh, an international Christian charity named Compassion. Yes, joy is elusive. Joy is fleeting. Joy is infrequent. Joy is special. It's just not every day. So I changed my journal to be a daily positivity journal. It's much easier. Thank you for listening. Next week, I start my two-week series on sexism and ageism in the performing arts. In the meantime, do check the Woman Worthy Facebook page for references from this podcast on joy. Don't forget to like and share. And have a great week. You have been listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. Tune in wherever you receive your podcasts with new episodes every Monday morning. You can leave your comments by downloading the Podbean app to your device and on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm Paulette Lee. I hope you found this program worthy of your time.